Well, I certainly enjoyed the music, and I'm grateful to God for it. And it uh, touched my heart, and for that, I'm grateful. I appreciate not only the music, but the spirit I sensed of these singers and players while they shared. Um, Dr. Greenway, thank you so much for the privilege and to the faculty and student body and friends. Uh, what a privilege it is to be here. Uh, I love Ken Hemphill. I had the privilege to pastor he and Paula for a number of years. He was faithful to tithe <clears throat> anyway, uh, and bring offerings and royalties to our, our ministry. Uh, they were, they're the type. They were ministering so much. And our normal saying was, no, you can't be here every week, but when you can't come, mail your tithe. And so did it. But anyway, uh, just picking at them. But it is, it is a joy to be here. On the plane ride over last night, which was extremely long considering, there were storms, so it took us way down into the Gulf and then made our way back up. And so during that time, I was writing a foreword to a new book that's coming out by Scott Pace at Southeastern Seminary and also Scott Shane, or Scott Shane, Shane Pruitt that serves on our team. And it's entitled Calling Out the Call. So in writing the foreword, I just dove in and I thought, okay, I need to write 500 words. And what I did is started reflecting on my own call and wrote about my call. So when God called me, I was a high school dropout. Uh, I'd been raised by a single mom in a government project. Dad had checked out and left six kids. No purpose, direction in life. Some of you know this, but I managed a pool room for four years, and so when I was 20 years old, my uh, aspiration in life was to be a professional billiard player. And in those days, I was well on my way. Uh, so those who know thought. And then somebody invited me to church, messed everything up. And I heard the gospel and Jesus changed my life. Within three years of someone giving me my first Bible, I was pastoring my first church. I've often thought God pushed me in the deep end and just said, we're going to teach you to swim or you're going to drown. I pastored Livonia Baptist Church first Sunday, 35. And then that church tripled there in a rural community close to Garden of Webb College and then university now. And then I went to uh, Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary, pastored one of the closest church west of the seminary. Our first Sunday, we had 37. So we're, uh, I was climbing the ladder of success. And that church, a uh, little better than doubled in attendance. And then God took me back to the church I was converted in, in Wilmington, North Carolina. And uh, we had 90 our first Sunday, and it became the fastest growing church in the state of North Carolina. First church in the Southern Baptist Convention in the state of North Carolina to baptize 200 converts. And yet it was in a community that had not been a new home built in 45 years. It's revitalization. And then God called me to the First Baptist Church of Woodstock, Georgia. First Sunday, 180 people, excited to be there. They had fired the other pastor in ministry music. Dynamic environment. And, uh, and then I spent the last 33 years there. And then my passion has been mentoring preachers. I mentored Two pastors a year for 25 years, and then I started a ministry called Timothy Barnabas, where I'm in my 28th year of training and encouraging pastors and wives, and I've always asked if God would give me permission, I would like to leave 
the pastorate at some time in my life and go out and train pastors and then took on the assignment also of hoping to once again flame the fire, the needed flaming of the fire of personal evangelism in the Southern Baptist Convention. I am grateful to God for the call of God. Matter of fact, the call of God is something that you put your yes on the table and you let the Lord Jesus Christ fill in the blanks. I'm uh, thrilled to hear uh, of a movement of revitalization where 85% of our churches are in need of because a lot of people said, I'm not going to go there, to which I've often said, not your call. And if you start out with it being your call, your teeth will be set on edge. And so just say, Jesus, I lift myself, fill it with the wind of the Spirit of God and see where he leads you. And so I was just reflecting as I finished writing last night. Um, I was just overwhelmed with, and I want to brag about it for just a moment, the absolute privilege to be a preacher of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I can honestly say after being in my 46th year of pastoring and ministry, I'm thrilled. Uh, I'm so grateful to God. What an honor to serve the Lord Jesus Christ. God has had so many surprises along the way, and what what a joy it is. I I love to preach the Word of God. I was uh, studying the other day, and I just wrote this statement down. The Word of God, don't ever forget this, the Word of God never travels alone. 1 Thessalonians 1.5 says, I came not to you with word only, but in power and with the Holy Spirit of God. I'm grateful for the companion of the Spirit of God. And I'm telling you, give me a preacher with the Word of God that's anointed with the Spirit of God, and I will show you revitalization as God radically changes lives through His Word. That was a good place to say amen. Thank you very much. Psalms 126, one of my favorite passages in the Bible. You know, especially one or two verses of it that you just heard so many times, but the entire passage. So I'm going to take my uh, time and, and talk to you about this. The blessing of being saved. You know, we were singing especially thank you for the blood. I really had trouble fighting back the tears. Even though it's been 49 years since the blood was applied, look at me, God helped me to never get over being saved. God helped me somehow by the grace of God to never forget what it was like to be lost and to have a passion for those that don't know you. And and I'll tell you, if that can happen, if you can keep a hot heart for souls, what a difference it'll make. Uh, My favorite character in the Old Testament is Caleb. Some of them say, why Caleb? In Joshua 14, when they're dillying out the land and they ask him what he wants, he wants Hebron. And here's what I wrote. What I love about Caleb is when Caleb was finishing, he was 85 He still wanted what he wanted when he started. And that's where we miss it. Jesus captures our heart. And there's something we want in making a difference for the glory of God. But as time goes on, we no longer want what we wanted when we started. 
So God, help us. That's how you'll finish well, is wanting what you wanted when you started. I'm going to read this verse the way I memorized it. So I want you to listen to Psalms 126. When the Lord turned again the captivity of Zion, we were like those that dream. Then, then was our mouth filled with laughter and our tongue with singing. Then said they among the heathen, the Lord have done great things for them. The Lord have done great things for us, whereof we are glad. Turn, turn again our captivity, O Lord, like the streams in the south. They that sow in tears shall reap in joy. He that goeth forth weeping, bearing precious seed, shall doubtless come again with rejoicing, bringing his sheaves with him. Some believe this psalm deals with the Israelites during the time of the Assyrian invasion under the reign of Hezekiah. Others believe it was during a time of Ezra and the return of God's people out of Babylonian captivity. One thing's for sure, God sets people free. In this psalm, early, early in my conversion experience, I couldn't read it without seeing a spiritual typology of a person's salvation. As I begin to exegete this passage, I could see what God does in and through a person that commits their life to Jesus Christ. So I see it as a psalm of conversion. And so I want to just give you three statements uh, that really clarifies the blessing of being saved. First of all, the blessing of being saved experienced. Verse 1 says it's a real salvation. When the Lord turned again to captivity of Zion, listen to the language. It was like a dream. Why would God liken our freedom to a dream? Because when a man or a woman gets genuinely converted to Jesus Christ, the reality is so good that it seems unbelievable. I mean, have you ever just thought about that, that you, in my life, I had never been to a Sunday evening service in my life, but the Spirit of God had brought me under deep conviction in a morning service. And the preacher, before they dismissed that day, said, there's a young man here and God's dealing with him. Let's pray God bring him back and save him. I normally would go to Holly Ridge Drag Strip and race my car in the afternoons because I'd only been to church three or four times in my life. But that day I went home and my wife said, we're not going to race. And I said, no. Why? Because the preacher was talking about me. Somebody said to me, oh, the preacher had your number. No, never forget this. It's not that the preacher's got your number. God knows your name. And I'm telling you, when you stand and preach from week to week or however God has called you to minister, what a joy it is to know that God knows the names of every person you're preaching to. And so it was like a dream. I mean, think about this. I, I went to church on my way to hell, and I went home on my way to heaven. I went to church living in a domain of darkness. On the way home, I'd been transferred 
into the light of the gospel of the glory of Jesus Christ. I mean, that's, that's, that would be like a dream. I'll never forget a lady one time called me when I was pastor at Longleaf in Wilmington, North Carolina, and she said, uh, you the pastor? And I said, yes, ma'am. And she said, I need to talk to you about my daughter. My daughter's never been to church. And she goes this morning for the first time, and she comes home and says, after being gone only an hour or so, comes home and says, she's changed forever. Explain to me how that could be. I said, well, first of all, ma'am, it didn't even take an hour. The moment that she turned from her sins and put her faith in Jesus, God changed her forever. Aren't you glad repentance is not temporary, that it's everlasting, and God changes a person forever? And by the way, I don't know of anything that will keep our hearts hot for Jesus more than to see people changed by the gospel regularly. Pastors have a lot of hospital duties. I used to always call my wife and say, Jan, I got to go to the hospital today. I sure wish you'd go with me. And she would uh, bargain with me. She'd say, I'll go, but you got to promise me that we'll go through the maternity ward before we leave. And I thought, all right. And that I, back in those days, you actually could actually go on that floor and just walk right through and look at all the newborns. So she, she loved to do that. And I got to thinking one time, you know, preachers, you don't really mean to, but you begin to think like a preacher. And everywhere you go, there's an illustration or a story. And let me tell you one thing I loved about the maternity ward. Everybody there was happy. I mean, they, they were happy. They were not like the church. They were happy. And so they, they were always in, in friendly. They'd just speak and they'd say, one of these yours? I know my wife just likes to come and look. And then, uh, then they'd point theirs out. They'd say, that's, that's mine. And we used to kid a lot because I, I really do have this uh, distinctively in my mind, one guy saying, uh, my wife says this one looks just like Uncle so-and-so. And, and I looked, and you know, it was a brand-new newborn, and it was still, I thought, a little shriveled up like a lizard. And I just thought, wow, poor whoever. And... Um, but, but I thought about the joy, and here's what I thought. You know why there's so much joy in the maternity ward? Because of new births. Our churches need to become maternity wards again where people are experiencing new birth. I'm trying to hold back this morning. I feel like, well, anyway... I'm a Native American, and I've been known to go on the warpath in the pulpit. But the bottom line is, nothing brings greater joy in a church than seeing people come to Jesus. You know why we have worship wars? Because people aren't getting saved. You let people get saved, and they'll have something else to think about and talk about. Oh, I'm not done to hit a nerve there. The music department just woke up. <laughs> so really, it's like a dream. And let me tell you about a dream. Dreams are not anticipated. You don't lay down and say, I'm going to have a dream. It was like a dream. Something I did not anticipate. Came upon them as a surprise. Did not even seem like reality. Salvation seems too good to be true. In fact, the reason most people will struggle 
with Good Friday and Easter Sunday is because it seems too good to be true. One man, one man can determine everyone's destiny that's ever lived. A man that dies on a nondescript hill in a nondescript country on a piece of wood could determine everybody's destination. Seems too good to be true. But it's real. Yes, it's real. Oh, praise God, it's real. And the doubt, it has been settled. And I know it's real. It's a real salvation. But you know, it's not just a real salvation, the blessing of being saved experienced. It's a recognizable salvation. The Bible says, when the Lord turned again the captivity of Zion, we were like them to dream. Then said they, listen to this, this is a good word. Then said they among the heathen, the heathen? Those that don't even acknowledge the Lord? But they're saying the Lord's done something great. Do you not marvel at the fact that God can so radically change a man or a woman that even an atheist would say, I'm not a believer, but what happened to them must be of divine source. We need to start preaching again that when there's no change, there's no Christ. God changes a man or a woman. Word gets out. He came to hear me preach in Myrtle Beach this week. His name's Dewey Williams. I'd known Dewey. Dewey uh, was a businessman, owned a big car lot, owned an Amico service station back in the days of full service. Find that on the history station. And uh, I had a, a church member went to Wilmington, North Carolina from Gaffney, South Carolina, just happened to stop of all places at that Amico station, and it just happened to be that my friend Dewey Williams was pumping his gas. This would be a normal question. Hey, I'm from Gaffney, South Carolina, but my new preacher is from Wilmington. Just wondering, does the name Johnny Hunt ring a bell? He said, yes. He said, I know of Johnny Hunt. I don't know him personally, but I know of him. I said, really? He said, yeah. He said, all I know is Johnny Hunt used to run J.C. Bullard's pool room, and... Um, the word around here is that the Lord changed his life. Then who would have dreamed that after there I would move to seminary and then I would go back to Wilmington and guess who I would witness to? Dewey. And guess who would become one of my life's friends? Dewey. And guess what really attracted him to us? A salvation that's recognizable. Um, God makes us holy. Uh, one of the words that you'll find if you just keep pressing down and pressing down on holy is that you're different. Let me tell you one word you won't find. Weird. When God saved me, he didn't make me weird. But I'll tell you one thing God did. God made me different. And let me tell you what I've found in this nation. Most people are not satisfied with who they are or where they are. And they're attracted to somebody that's different. And especially if they knew you in the first place. And then they know that you're different. The blessing of being saved. Quickly, let me talk to you about the burden of being saved exhibited. 
See, the burden of being saved exhibited. God changed their life. Did you notice that it said, Then said they among the heathen, The Lord had done great things for them. And then they acknowledged it themselves. And they said, The the, the Lord has been good to us. Uh, It's kind of like uh, to God be the glory for what he's done in their life. Their mouth was filled with laughter. Their tongue with singing. But then something happened. They've been set free. But uh, those of you that know the history of this passage, God released them a remnant at a time. Now, I need to get real personal with you for just a moment. Please press in for just a moment. People's eternity are at stake. What am I about to say? When God changes your life, you normally have a passion to see other people's lives changed. Um, it's been said before that when you see one of your friends get saved, it's like getting saved all over again. <laughs> Just the joy that comes with it. Um, even though they've been released, look at the prayer of verse 4. It says, Lord, turn again the captivity of Zion. In other words, like, God, you sent us out, but you only sent a remnant. Not everybody got free. So, so listen, here's how it happens in my heart. Jesus, you set me free. My mouth is filled with laughter, and I'm I'm singing hymns for the first time in my whole life. You've changed my life. It's it's real to me. It's recognizable to everyone that's known me through the years. But Lord, guess what? Since you just let a remnant out, are y'all listening? Mama, mama is still over in Babylon. Are are you with me? My, My brothers and sisters, some of my best friends have not been released. Lord, turn it over again. Send the rest of them out. Has there been much of a passion throughout the Bible to see other people saved and for God to change lives? Exodus 32, 32. Moses is coming down off the mount. Aaron, his associate pastor, has not done a good job leading. He has built a golden calf. As he comes down out of the presence of God and the holiness of God, he is pretty confident in his heart. God's getting ready to wipe out the nation. So he prays this prayer. Lord, forgive the iniquity of thy people. And if not, blot my name from the book you've written. Call it what you want to call it, but at the end of the day, he's saying, if... If they can't go, I don't want to go. They say there was a day in the altars where it was not unusual to hear a mother cry out, God, whatever it takes, save my mama. Save my son. I mean, this is how many pray. Lord, if me going to a premature grave would wake my son to the reality Of Jesus, take me. A burden for being saved exhibited. How about the New Testament? Listen to Paul, Romans 9 3. I, this is good. I could wish myself accursed from Christ. Translate it from a family, from a family. Um, anathema. We're in a seminary setting. Let me go ahead and translate it. Damn me. Doom me. 
but oh God, save my family. Oh, by the way, how do you get your mind around that theologically? We're on a theological institution. How do you get your mind around that? Paul just penned one chapter before, Romans chapter 8, verse 35. What can separate me from the love of God? There's nothing can separate me. And yet now he's asking God to separate him from lost people. Listen carefully. I need you to hear this. There's a time in your life that you move away from just, I've got it all theologically figured out. You're moved with such emotion for the lostness of humanity that you plead with God even to the point that it doesn't even reason with your theology. That was a good word. <laughs> Compare them. Romans 8.35. Romans 9, 3. There's not a discrepancy. I ain't got it all figured out. I can't win every argument. I love it when Philip is going to bring Nathaniel, his friend, to the Lord. And by the way, friends bring friends to the Lord. Tell them about Jesus. When he said, hey, I have found the Messiah. I've found the one to whom the scriptures prophesy. Jesus of Nazareth. And remember what Nathaniel said? Can anything good come out of, out of Nazareth? He could have sat there and thought, hold on just a moment. I've got my seminary degree. I can give you full explanation. No, I like what he said. Come and see. Oh, and just for the record's sake, let's let facts be our friends. 85% of the people that are in this room today, you're in the family of God because of the power of the invite. Somebody brought you to church or invited you to church. 85% of the evangelical church in North America is on their way to heaven because somebody brought them to church, mom and dad, when you were a child, or somebody invited you. I'm a Christian today because N.W. Pridgen, a carpenter, would not leave me alone. Every time he saw me, he would say, Johnny, I wish you'd get your pretty little wife, Janet, and that you would come to Longleaf Baptist Church and worship with us. And this is just a word. It's just a side note, but here it is. The night God saved me, God was saving the next preacher of the church I was saved in. Oh, by the way, that too is a good word. Well, let me move a step further and I'll, I'll close. There's, there's the blessing of being saved. Experienced. I've, I've experienced a, a real salvation. And by the grace of God, I really do believe that God has made it recognizable. Christ in me. Uh, Galatians 220, um, my hope that's in him, uh, it's made a difference in my wife, it's made a difference in my children, it's made a difference in my grandchildren. But then I, I wrap it up with uh, the business of being saved and joyed. You know, the business, yeah. Um, God's really put me in the business of seeing other people get saved. I'm a, I'm a gospel preacher. I share the good news. I'm a personal soul winner. I share the gospel of Jesus Christ with lost people. And so he, he says, uh, they that sow in tears shall reap in joy. Let me give you a one-liner that maybe you can take home with you. A seed in a basket will not produce a harvest. 
we've got the seed, the word of God. It's the power of God on the salvation. It's precious, powerful, productive. But if we don't share it, it doesn't affect anyone. You know, we like to think of it in international missions. We say the gospel's only good news if it gets there in time. Well, it's got here in time, but it's still of no good if it remains in the basket. The business of being saved. The Bible speaks of a God-given program. He, he that goeth forth, goes an action word. Uh, I've always led my churches uh, to be trained in evangelism and to go. I've always modeled it. In fact, um, there is no evangelistic church in the Southern Baptist Convention that's not led by a evangelistic pastor. You model soul winning. Uh, Roy Fish, 50 years here. He gave it to us clearly to begin with. Evangelism is not taught, it's called. I, I took it a step further. I believe that's true of everything you lead your church to be faithful in. Generosity is not taught, it's caught. You, you display generosity. Somebody says, I'm in a small church. I can't display generosity. Well, that's interesting. Uh, Jesus did it with a widow's mite. Um, I journaled this statement while I was in Haiti. You don't have to be rich to be generous. You have to be generous to be generous. When he wanted to model generosity, he chose to pour his woman a Bible. The word forth, you just skip over if you like exegetical teaching. It implies leaving something behind. It suggests a set purpose and an active worker. A set purpose and an active worker. And so you go out and you win others. But you don't have just a God-given program of going. You have a God-given passion. It was Spurgeon that said the winners of souls are first the weepers of souls. Tears of earnestness produce tears of repentance. It's just a question, just to kind of see where we are. Only Jesus knows, but I want to ask. In your quiet time this morning, did you call one lost person's name to Jesus? Just one. Anybody? Do you have a journal? And in your journal, is there any lost people's names which you're praying for? It's in this state. I was one of the preachers that preached Freddie Gage's funeral. And Freddie Gage always encouraged me, keep names written in the flyleaf of your Bible that you're asking God to save. So do you have a sibling, a parent, a neighbor, a classmate, a friend that you're praying for? Jesus wept, and we should wept. There's a God-given power. He that goeth forth weeping, bearing, bearing precious seed. You know, in, in my early days, um, I let things bother me too much during my preaching. Um, there would be a child disrupting the service. And they say you can't have two thoughts at one time, but I struggle with that. I, I think I do. So I may be schizophrenic, but the bottom line is I've been preaching before, Dr. Greenway, and I've just thought to myself, I wish they'd take that child to the nursery. 
I don't, I don't think that way anymore. I pray God saved the mama. And how many times um, I've seen when the invitation's given. Oh, and that's a thought. An invitation. Somebody asked me one time, why do you always give an invitation? And it's a simple answer. I got saved in one. <laughs> I'm just thinking maybe somebody else might get saved in one. So they invited me to come. The precious seed. The seed's precious. It's pure. It's productive. It's powerful. Um, it, it, can, it can crack concrete. It's like a hammer. And then there's a God-given promise. He that goeth forth weeping, bearing precious seed shall doubtless come again with rejoicing. Shall doubtless. Sorrow in sowing produces rejoicing and reaping. I, uh, I, I just had a funeral for the chairman of the pulpit committee's wife of the first church I served. Now think about that. I went back to Livonia Baptist Church about 10 days ago. Jonathan Catanzaro drove me over there. He wanted to see my very first church. It was nowhere as big as I thought it was. You know, in your mind when you're younger, I just thought, but anyway. So I went to Livonia and I did the funeral service of Nancy Peeler. Her husband was the chairman of the pulpit committee. So I took John over to the parsonage and I said, John, this is where Jan and I lived in the parsonage. And then I said, look over there, John. Here's what they said to me when I went there, and I closed with this. I said, that's, uh, that's the ground where you'll have a garden. They didn't ask me if I wanted a garden. They told me where it would be. Well, I was from the city. We ate green beans out of cans. And they said, so um, tell us what you want. We're going to plant your garden right here. And so it was apparent that no was the improper answer. So I had a garden, and I won't bore you with details, but I was awful taking care of it. Uh, but then one day a guy said, I want to show you how to plant potatoes. So I went to his house, and if you're a farmer or you came from a farm, you'll know this, but a seed potato to a city slicker looks like a regular potato. And I even said to Otis, if you got so many, you're burying some, we could use them at the parsonage. He said, oh, no, 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 Johnny, this is a seed potato. These reproduce more potatoes. And it's really the pr principle of John 12, 24, except a seed or a grain fall into the ground and, and it dies. It abides alone. Now look at me for just a moment. At this point, if the numbers are right, 85% of Southern Baptists will be the first part of John 12, 24. You will abide alone. You'll go to heaven one day empty-handed. There'll never be anyone that you gave your testimony to or you shared John 3, 16 with that you would say, would you like today to receive Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior? They say that 85% have never done that. I hope they're wrong in their numbers, but I fear that they're not. And so it abides alone. But if it dies, if we'll die to ourselves, to our reputation, the Bible teaches that we'll bear much fruit. So Otis planted the potatoes, called me back. I don't know how long it took, but he called me one day and said, I'm going to dig potatoes, come down here. And I went down, and you can't make this up. And he went down and he reached, and God was teaching me a valuable lesson. He reached way down to the ground and brought up a potato, and that was just it. And I was unimpressed. 
And he said, there's a problem here. This potato did not die. So he said, come on, come on. We walked further up the road. He reached down, dug around. Look what he pulled up this time, a whole vine. And you know the story. It was one potato, two potato, three potato, four. <laughs> there were several potatoes. And that's what God does with us. When, when we die, there's others. Let me tell you why Johnny Hunt would not have any other potatoes. Because Johnny wouldn't want to die. But if I die, I'll start baptizing my friends. I baptized my mama. I saw my daddy baptized. I baptized my brother, and then he just finished. He retired. He pastored 33 years. Oh, by the way, if you thought your brother would become a preacher if he can't got saved, you'd leave right now. You'd leave the school. Take a two-day leave absence. Go win him to Jesus. But we just don't see him for what Jesus could make him.